0: For me, young people are the hope of our church. Uh, Whatever religious background one might be, young people are our hope because they can help us hold this tension between orthodoxy on the one hand and responding to culture, responding to our changing world in the other.
1: Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to a new year and a new season of the Center for Congregations podcast. We are thankful that you are continuing to join us on this journey and that you haven't gotten tired of us yet. I'm your co-host Ben Tapper out of the central office in Indianapolis, and I'm joined as always by my colleague Matt, who's the education director and Northeast director
1: out of Fort Wayne. Yeah, and the key word there was, they're not sick of us. Yet. Yet. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) It's coming. (laughs) Hey, Ben. (laughs) Uh,
2: But today we had a great interview with Kara Powell from Fuller, and we talked about the three big questions that youth, young adults, and adolescents wrestle with and are continuing to wrestle with. And so, Matt, I'm wondering, in your work, both as the education director and as a resource consultant, what themes about youth, young adults, and adolescents are coming up?
1: Uh, It comes up quite a bit. Our ed events about youth and young adults are among our most popular. It's definitely our special grand initiatives that we've done in the past. The ones on youth and young adults have been among our most well attended in terms of interest. So I think it's always in front of people that the future of the church is here and we need to figure out how to form the faith of these young adults and these youth and help them become a part of the faith tradition that we are a part of. I think specifically, People are worried about the societal decline of congregational engagement among young people. I mean, the statistics have been pretty drastic around millennials. And remember, at this point, millennials are at the youngest 22, maybe 23, and at their oldest really in their 40s. So when we talk about the millennial generation, we're really no longer talking about people in their teens. Now we're talking about Gen Z who come after them. And I can't remember. I don't know if they've even identified the generational cohort after Gen Z. Gen Alpha, I think. Okay. So they decided to go from English to Greek. Well, why not? <laughs> it works for the weather. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's interesting. So now we're, we're essentially considering generational cohorts the same thing as hurricanes. <laughs> well, Tropical storms. You know, so. The millennials have left their mark on society. <laughs> <laughs> But I think one of the key problems that the question behind the question for a lot of these congregations asking about it is just a lack of understanding of younger generations. But I think that's normal. I think every generation doesn't understand the one that comes after because society is different. They're asking different questions. And maybe the core questions, as we'll see in the interview today, are the same. But the way those questions are asked or the way that those questions are answered are very different because of the generation. And I think we just tend to look at youth and young adults when we've reached our late thirties, early forties and older, we tend to look at them as kind of an alien species Mm. that we just don't get anymore. And so a lot of the question behind the question for us, I think is we don't understand them. Help us understand them, help us understand how to reach them. And it's an important question, but I think that's kind of the key question that we get. What about you? Yeah,
2: I mean, similarly, we've got major grant initiatives and congregations that are participating in those, and they're wrestling with these questions about engaging youth and young adults. Um, I think I noticed it most pronounced, though, at the earlier stages of the pandemic, uh, you know, spring and summer of 2020, as millennials and even more so Gen Z Folks got involved in some of the social justice movements that were happening in cities across the country. And congregational leaders began wrestling with okay, people aren't in our congregations due to the pandemic. We've identified that social justice, particularly racial justice, is something that our young adults and teenagers really, really care about. And so if we want to keep them engaged, We've got to know how to engage around these topics. And that's when I really saw most congregations begin to kind of face the distance, you know, between where the congregation was at on issues and where some of the youth and young adults were at on issues and to really begin to ask, okay, how do we bridge that gap? And I think that work has continued for those congregations that started it in 2020.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I think it raises an important point that you may not agree with the stances of those in a different generation around social issues, but you have to wrestle with the fact that that's what they're concerned about. Yeah. But I think empathy and understanding is absolutely vital to the scenario that, again, even if you don't agree with the stances that are being taken, you need to have answers to those questions or at least be thinking through that and interfacing with youth and young adults about those questions rather than just assuming that those aren't important questions, because regardless of what you think, they think they're important. And if you don't address them, then essentially you are becoming irrelevant to their experience. And that is really problematic. And that's counter to what we want, which is engagement in congregations, because we want congregations to be places that are relevant. And I'm not saying that to the expense of your faith tradition or your orthodoxy or whatever it is your major tenets are. That is not to say that you leave those behind, but how do those shape and inform the questions that are being asked? I think that's the important piece.
2: Yeah, and I'll even take it beyond the extent of congregations. I think in terms of just relationship building, connection, and support systems, we need to ensure that we are able to maintain enough bridges to other generations so that Not only are we relevant in their lives, but they can be relevant in ours, right? Because even if a youth or young adult leaves your congregation, they still might stay in contact with you, with your family. There still might be learning that takes place, relationship and support through hard times that can take place. And if we allow barriers to destroy those bridges, then people in many generations are going to lose those innate support systems and lose those relationships. And at the end of the day... You know, I have the radical ideology that relationships are foundationally more important than any single congregation, right? Congregations will come and go, but the relationships are the fabric of communities. And those are the things that get us through pandemics, that get us through social uprisings, that get us through economic depressions. It's those relationships and those connections. And so just for no other reason than in service of relationship, we've got to be willing to come with curiosity and empathy.
1: So let me understand this, Ben. Let me make sure I'm hearing you that you come out of a trinitarian understanding of the Christian faith where Father, Son and Holy Spirit have existed forever from eternity to eternity in loving relationship with each other and you're claiming that relationships are the most important thing in life like I know it's it's wild it's it's really a, a bold branch to <laughs> to step
2: out on but I'm doing it <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's also remembering that the church is not the building, right? We've talked in prior podcasts about the word "ecclesia," which is what the word is in the New Testament, and it means those who are called out. It means the people, right? And so, your point is absolutely well taken. That regardless of someone's status as a member of your congregation or not, if you've had relationship with them and have an opportunity to continue relationship, it's important to maintain those because you're still being the church, you're still being the the called out, and you're still being the body as you reach out with those relationships. And even if somebody, you know, is attending a different congregation, like that's not necessarily what's important. What's important is are you there to support them and to be, from my faith tradition, are you there to be Christ to them? And
2: for those of you that are wondering if Professor Burke would lead the etymology lessons in season three, nah, we're kicking off season four strong with the ecclesia. (laughs) You're welcome, folks. You're welcome.
1: At least it's Greek and not Latin this time, <laughs> right. I suppose. But anyhow. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, are we ready to get to the interview? Yeah. Great. So, we just had a fantastic time talking with Dr. Kara Powell. We're just big fans of Fuller Youth Institute and their work. We've worked with her before and really enjoy it. So, I think you're going to enjoy the interview, and we'll share some of the resources that come out of Fuller Youth Institute on the other side of the interview. Welcome back, everyone. And we are so pleased to have with us Dr. Kara Powell, the Chief of Leadership Formation and Executive Director of the Fuller Youth Institute at Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome, Dr. Kara Powell.
0: So good to be with you, Matt and Ben.
1: Yeah, good to have you here. And we're interested in talking with you. We know that you released a book in 2021 called The Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager, and I'm really fascinated with the premise and the ideas in it. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that. So I'm just curious, to what was kind of the genesis of these three big questions? Was it based in the research from Fuller?
0: Yeah, it is absolutely based on our research, Matt. And in many ways, it started with our growing young research as we studied 250 churches that aren't aging or shrinking, but are doing amazing work with young people. Mm-hmm. And we saw in those churches how important it was that they empathize with this next generation, not judge young people as we're so prone to do, but really journey with young people. And so we thought, you know, we want to give even more practical tools as well as a deeper understanding of what young people are navigating. And so our team at the Follett Institute, we then did interviews with 27 very diverse teenagers from all over the country, spent four to six hours with each of them paired that with about 2,000 interviews and focus groups and surveys that we had done. And so it was from, you know, marinating in face-to-face interactions with young people, as well as reading what other researchers were saying about them, that we landed on these three big questions, which we think help us as adults whether we're leaders, mentors, pastors, parents, caregivers, step-parents, grandparents, whatever role we have with young people we care about, it helps us to have much better relationships with them.
1: Yeah. And were you surprised by the findings about these questions?
0: You know, not particularly because in many ways, the three questions, and I'll just go ahead and name them now if that's okay. Yeah, please. The three questions are identity, who am I, belonging, where do I fit, and purpose, what difference can I make? So, identity, belonging, and purpose. You know, I think if you look at the research literature for the last few decades, these threads are certainly woven through studies. So identity, belonging, and purpose in and of themselves perhaps aren't that surprising. I think one of the biggest surprises in our research was how much young people were open to talking about their journeys, how they enjoyed the chance to share more about themselves when there was an empathetic adult who slowed down, took the time to look them in the eye, to ask a question, to follow up and say, tell me more. You know, many of the young people we interviewed actually were somewhat disappointed when our, you know, three episodes of interviews were done. They wanted to keep talking. So I think young people's openness to adults was maybe the bigger surprise, Matt. And you know, I think that makes this—I don't know if we should say post-pandemic. I'm not entirely clear how to talk about what season we are in the pandemic. But I think this gives us an opportunity as adults, the Tide Research Institute has done some research on young people and found that 70% of teenagers, as they're coming out of the pandemic, are more interested in deeper relationships. They've been isolated, they felt lonely, and now they're hungry to connect with peers and adults. So I think we have this divine opportunity right now for those of us who are over 30 to build relationships with those of us who are under 30.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm wondering if some of the people listening might not be a little bit surprised of the depth of those questions, because I think we often think of teenagers as or young people as maybe not as thoughtful, more interested in things that don't have that kind of depth to them. Yeah. And so it's interesting that that is such an important focus, because I think it's a big blind spot for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's where on any given day, I'm not sure that the typical adolescent is doing self-reflection on their sense of identity, you know, overtly. But if you look at the questions that young people are asking, whether it be about technology and social media, whether it be about LGBTQ questions, whether it be about where they're going to go to college, what extracurriculars they should do, where they should go on Friday night and with whom, you know, these kind of daily pressing questions we think identity, belonging, and purpose are the questions beneath the questions, you know, that deeper level. You know, I'll say, Matt and Ben, I was, I was particularly haunted by a 15-year-old who said, I wish the church would stop giving me answers to questions I'm not asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wow, as a leader and a parent, that was so convicting to me that we're not always in tune with the day-to-day or the deeper questions that young people are asking. And so we're throwing thoughts their way that aren't in their strike zone. No wonder young people are leaving the church if we're not answering the questions they're asking. Mm -hmm. And so this book that Brad Griffin and I co-authored, it's our attempt to equip leaders and parents with what they need to really understand what young people are asking.
2: I think adults and leaders are going to continue to have a hard time Knowing and addressing the questions that younger people are asking when they're not asking those questions themselves, you know, a lot of us we reach a certain age in life and we just we decide we want to feel settled, we want to stop some of that exploration, and we stop asking those questions because it's easy to do so, or we don't have time to think, or what you know, whatever. And so we're not doing that ourselves. Of course, we're not going to to do that with younger folks.
0: Ben, that was just like your drop the mic moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're making a good point, which we make in our book that. You know, these are questions that those of us over 30 are still asking. It's just for those of us a little bit older, the questions are often at a low simmer. Whereas for teenagers and young adults, they're at a rolling boil. Yeah. But literally last night, last night, so Dave and I, we have three kids. They're 21, 19, and 15. And one of our kids, who shall remain nameless, and I'm going to try to do neutral gender here as I tell the story if I can, but one of our kids, they hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. They made a choice that caused me to struggle with my sense of identity. Mm. And, you know, thanks to these questions and how much I've thought about them in the last couple of years, you know, normally it takes me a day or two to realize that something's poking at my sense of identity, but this time it only took about an hour for me to realize, gosh, why am I feeling so hurt by my child's decision? And I realized, oh, it's because it threatens my sense of identity. And then I asked myself, which of these questions is my child trying to pursue? Mm. And my child made a choice that was driven by their sense of belonging. Mm. So, you know, my child's sense of belonging and drive to fit in with friends, quite honestly, caused them to make a choice that poked at my sense of identity as a mom and made me feel like I'm not a good mom, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had to process with my husband last night and I said to him, you know, our kids pursuing belonging and so hungry for belonging and I'm struggling with my sense of identity. And so, you know, that's why we're clashing. And part of what we say in the book is that discipleship for all ages, Ben and Matt, is Leaning into Jesus's best answers to those questions. And so, you know, one of the things I pray for myself almost every day is that when it comes to my own identity, that I will know that Jesus makes me enough.
1: Hmm.
0: That I will know that Jesus makes me enough. That when a teenager makes a decision that hurts me somehow, That instead of questioning who I am in that person's life, et cetera, I'll say, no, Jesus, you make me enough. And I find I have to marinate in that truth myself, given my own identity journey. And so I think, you know, each of us, we have a theory, Brad Griffin and I have a theory that each of us has a question that kind of leads the way for us. That is where we tend to get poked. That is where we tend to grow. And so for me, it's definitely identity. For my husband, it's purpose. Like when he hears about a problem in the world, he wants to grab a hammer, buy a plane ticket, go fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And so he really leads with purpose. A lot of people lead with belonging. The child I was referring to, my, my child, that child leads with belonging and they're constantly hungry for belonging. So yes, you know, this is not only lenses we can use to understand young people, but it's a mirror we can use to understand ourselves too.
2: Yeah. I love the process that you kind of articulated there of having that experience of there being a rupture in relationship and being able to slow down, right, and observe not only what was taking place maybe for your child, but what was taking place for you. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that might be one of the most important skills to have as a parent, yeah. as a youth yeah. leader, as anyone working in any sort of relational field, honestly, but especially with younger folks. And so I just, I really want to highlight that because that is so important to be able to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious about, you mentioned, you know, social media is tied to these questions. And I think a lot of adults are concerned and uh, I think unconsciously consumed with social media more than they think they are. Yes. And they talk about it as younger generations problem, but to be honest, and I don't think my parents really listen to this podcast very much, but like my dad's one of the worst offenders. <laughs> He's got his phone a lot. Yeah. But just curious about that tie. What have you seen in the research and in the conversations, how social media is a problem, but also potentially a solution in relationship as well?
0: I'm so glad you brought out both the problem and the solution of technology. You know, in many ways, I'm very pro-technology. It's what's allowing me to join you all today, right, from California instead of from Indiana. And with young people specifically, you know, a recent study revealed that 68% of young people have felt like technology and social media has been a lifeline for them during the pandemic. And, you know, I've, I've certainly seen this with my own teenagers and young adults, how important, whether it's Zoom or FaceTime or just you know be on Instagram or whatever, help them connect with peers and with mentors when they were isolated at home. So there's a lot of good from technology, but it's interesting how technology and social media intersects with identity, belonging, and purpose. So let's look at identity. You know, obviously, young people, and really all of us, we think about who we're projecting, what we're projecting about ourselves online, right? And social media gives young people a chance to experiment with different parts of themselves, It also puts a fair amount of pressure on a young person's sense of identity, though, because, boy, they are mindful about, you know, which picture of the 20 that they've taken, they feel okay, because it projects the fun Mm -hmm. or the reflective or, you know, whoever they're trying to project. So, it gives an opportunity, kind of a theater, to try on different selves, but it also puts pressure on young people as they're figuring out their identity. Belonging, like I said a moment ago, technology helps us stay connected, and yet... If you look at what's happening with mental health with young people, which, you know, there were mental health struggles before the pandemic. It's only been exacerbated. I mean, CDC says anxiety has tripled and depression has quadrupled for all generations in the last year. And so it's interesting if you look at the correlation between widespread smartphone usage and mental health challenges. So around 2012, 2013, When more and more people of all generations, especially young people, had smartphones, there were some changes in risk behavior there. The good news is they're partying less, they're engaged in uh, substance abuse less, premarital sex rates have gone down. But what has increased is anxiety, depression, suicide. So you know the way that I like to summarize the data is the risk behaviors that young people used to do with others are decreasing. The risk behaviors they do on their own in their own rooms on that friday night when everybody else seems to be out having fun and they can see on their device in real time the fun everybody is having no wonder there's this correlation between widespread smartphone usage and mental health challenges although there are a number of other factors involved in mental health too but i do think technology is one of them so when it comes to belonging Social media is a gift and also a challenge for young people. And then lastly, and quickly, when it comes to purpose, like I love how young people are more aware of what's going on in the world through social media. You know, in 2020, in the midst of the George Floyd murder and how our country responded after that, you know, every night at dinner, because we were all home, we were quarantined here in California. You know, my first question to my kids that summer would be, what did you see on social today? Mm. Because they were following race, and they were following this quest for reconciliation. And it might be a five-minute conversation or a 25-minute conversation. So, you know, they are so aware. I think the flip side is sometimes young people think that just hashtagging justice is really being involved in justice and advocacy work. And yes, it's probably better than doing nothing, but there's so much more Mm -hmm. that we want young people to be engaged in. So it's a great foot in the door, but we need to keep walking when it comes to our sense of purpose. So in each of those, identity, belonging, and purpose, technology can be helpful, but it can also be harmful.
2: Yeah. And I mean, we're seeing that come out in the latest news about Facebook and Instagram, uh, you know, as well with their internal reporting and data about the mental health effects of those apps. And so.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. It's really important. I want to share something that I observed from my time working with youth. And I'm curious, Kara, what your research says about my observation. Okay. Yeah. So I spent probably two years or so, maybe longer working at a, a Mennonite church here in Indiana. And I noticed that the youth, the teens that I worked with that had an identity that was rooted in a historically marginalized population, you know, they were black, multiracial, or even queer, that they seem to have a heightened level of maturity and awareness in wrestling with these three questions Uh that you're talking about. And then by proxy, those that maybe didn't have those identities, if they were in close enough relationship, their level of awareness um, and wrestling was also heightened. And so they ended up having kind of a different level of maturity than other youth. And so I'm wondering about our relationship or teenagers' relationship to marginalized identities and and how that affects these questions.
0: Such a good question. So of the 27 diverse teenagers that we interviewed, 20 of them were young people of color. Mm -hmm. And we did that on purpose. We wanted to disproportionately listen to and understand young people of color. In the U.S. overall, particular cities or communities or towns might be different, but in the U.S. overall, we crossed a line in 2020, a line that I think we should celebrate that half of those under 18 are young people of color and half of those under 18 here in the U.S. are white. So, you know, our country is diversifying. And so, you know, to your question, as we listen to these young people, I'll just take identity for a moment. One of the common current narratives that we heard from young people is they don't feel like they're enough. Mm. They feel like they don't measure up, that they don't feel smart enough, they don't feel popular enough, they don't feel attractive enough, et cetera. And that was true kind of across the board. For young people of color, especially Latino and Black African-American youth, They also dealt with, I don't feel Latino enough. Mm -hmm. I don't feel black enough as they were navigating multiple worlds and the intersection of those worlds. So we certainly saw, uh, let me just say, an additional level of challenge Mm -hmm. when it comes to just looking at identity as an example. Here's what was interesting, though, and there's other research that certainly shows this looking at Latino and African-American young people. There's often more of an intergenerational community supporting them. Yeah. And so I can't say for sure, Ben, You know your theory about they therefore have a more developed sense of identity, belonging, and purpose. We didn't really assess that per se, mm-hmm. but I can say that young people of color have the struggle that God often uses yeah. to deepen us. You know, one of my least favorite verses in Scripture is Romans five three and four, mm. where Paul writes, "Suffering leads to perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope." Mm-hmm. And while I wish we were all, including young people, we would grow in you know through sweetness and light, it's often struggle that helps us grow. So there certainly is a layer of struggle that mm. you know my heart my heart breaks yeah. that young people of color have to navigate. And yet it could foster some growth. And then there are some enhanced intergenerational, especially extended family support that young people of color have that could also help them in their ongoing maturity and growth and identity, belonging, and purpose.
2: That makes sense. And that seems to track with my theory. And it's not even so much that a young person's sense of identity, belonging, or purpose wouldn't innately be more developed, but I think, you know, as a black biracial person myself, There's a way in which you have to engage with those questions sooner than I think your white, maybe more middle, upper class counterparts do. And so at 16 or 17, you're already like maybe three steps ahead and just thinking about that and asking some of those questions, whereas others are just getting started. And that can make a big difference.
0: Sooner and constantly. Yes. Navigating those questions yes. in a way that I, as a white dominant culture person, probably didn't navigate as a teenager. Right. So you're right. you're absolutely right, Ben.
2: And so then as a, a minister, as a leader, as a mentor, a parent, you know, if you don't hold those same identities yourself, I think it can be really important to just to have that awareness. Yeah. If nothing else, at least of the fact that they're asking those questions constantly and probably have been for years. Yeah. So then when they come to you. You have to be able to kind of hold space, you know, for the history of questioning that they're carrying with them, you know.
0: Yeah, and to that point, in our book, the three big questions that change every teenager, we offer over three hundred questions. And I wouldn't recommend any adult try to do them all in one sitting with a young person. (laughs) But over three hundred questions, just two or three at a time is, you know, what we're thinking. But many of them do have to do with race and social location because A, that's a theological conviction of ours at Fuller Seminary. But B, again, if you look at the data on young people, this generation is more ethnically and culturally diverse than any others, including those of us who are 30. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the data shows that those of us over 30 are going to be interacting with young people who are from different social locations. And so how do we be mindful of that? How do we ask questions in a way that's curious and not off putting. Yep. And so we tried to give some tips for when you're crossing those cultural and ethnic divisions or differences.
2: Yeah, I love that idea of those tips. And, you know, I've got, like I mentioned, two graduate degrees. I study and have studied race and the intersectionality of systemic oppression. And even with all that knowledge and my own experience, I found that I was still learning almost daily. From the youth that I was working with daily, right? Yeah. So, even in the midst of their wonderings and their uncertainty, they're still teaching and reflecting on some really deep things, at least at times. And so, do you have advice for folks about how to be able to learn, to remain open enough to learn as well as to teach from that age group?
0: So, if you look at the data of the church in general in the US, you know, I'm an optimist. And yet, if you look at what's happening to Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox churches, uh, Christian churches in general, the average church is shrinking. The average church is aging. Mm-hmm. A research colleague of mine who was actually involved in the study, Montague Williams, says that young people have left the church to find the church, or they've left the church to be the church. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I've said two, if not three times in the last week, like. For me, young people are the hope of our church. Uh, Whatever religious background one might be, young people are our hope because they can help us hold this tension between orthodoxy on the one hand and responding to culture, responding to our changing world in the other. I'm a Christian, as I've said to my kids, like the church, we need you. We need you to show us new ways to worship and grow in Jesus. We need you to lead us forward. And don't wait for us older adults to like figure it out. We want to journey with you, but we need your insights. We need your questions. And so, you know, I think if we don't listen, to young people, then the church is going to keep aging and shrinking. But if we do listen to young people, I think they're going to show us how to revitalize our current congregations, mm-hmm. as well as imagine new forms of being the church and doing what you know, our faith requires and asks of us. So, to your question, Ben, like young people are, for me, young people are our hope. If we do what we do in the interviews, yeah. if we slow down, if we look them in the eye, if we listen, if we accept their answers... And if we journey alongside them.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point because as we get older, we have answered questions that we had in the context that we were raised in, but remembering that the context and the questions may be subtly different in different generations. I remember when it struck me that there was a time when door-to-door evangelism made a ton of sense. It was a solution to a problem in a specific cultural context. Yeah but it doesn't make sense anymore. And sorry for anybody listening who still is (laughs) out there doing door-to-door evangelism. You know, God bless you and your endeavors, but there probably are more effective ways to think about evangelism. And it was a a way of approaching a problem that doesn't fit our current cultural context any longer, I personally don't think.
0: Yeah. Well, Um, and we've seen this in creative churches in the last 10 years of our research, Matt, that there are some churches who are still, their philosophy of outreach is, hey, neighbors, hey, friends, come to us but the majority of churches have shifted and are saying hey if we're going to love and serve our neighbors and our friends we need to go to them. Yeah. We need to show up where they are. And again back to Ben's question like young people can be a compass for us in helping us understand where young people are, where all generations will be now or 5 10 years from now. And so, you know, young people are entrepreneurs. They are our pioneers. They are innovators. So there's so much we can learn from young people. And so for church leaders listening to this or faith leaders listening to this, you know, my question to all of us would be who's one or three or five young people that you can just start having regular conversations with. Some of the most creative communicators I know in faith settings, you know, they'll do a monthly focus group, take young people out to Starbucks and just ask them questions because as they spend that 60, 75 minutes with young people, they come to learn so much that affects how they communicate, how they think about the world, how they think about discipleship, evangelism, etc. So, that's something really practical any of us can do. How are you engaging, You know, ideally, at least every four weeks with a young person or two, so that they can help keep you fresh and keep you learning and an awfully long way, you're also mentoring them. So both sides are growing in this sense of identity, belonging, and purpose that we want to grow in.
2: well I'm, I'm wondering you know what's next? You've got this book, this research, this knowledge, what do you hope is next?
0: So glad you asked Ben. So fuller working on our own, young life working on our own, any church, any denomination, working on our own, at best, we're going to see a 10% change in young people. If we want to see a more massive change in young people, a 10x change in young people, I think we have to do what Jesus talked about in John 17, what Jesus prayed for, and that is be more unified. Mm -hmm. So, we at the Full Youth Institute, for the last couple years, we've been having underground, kind of behind-the-scenes conversations with about 20 different denominations, about 30 different ministry organizations. To the point that we're about a year later in 2022, we'll be launching publicly what we're calling 10 by 10. And the mission of 10 by 10 is to help faith matter more for 10 million teenagers over the next 10 years. There's data that shows about a million young people a year are leaving. And so, what could we do by stacking hands on research? And that's the good news there's research like in this book, and like so many others have done often funded by the wonderful Lilly Endowment in Indiana. And in fact, all the research we're talking about today was funded by the Lilly Endowment. There's so much amazing research that's been done. There's so many bright spot churches and ministries that we can learn from. And so how can we pull that knowledge, curate it, and then share it more broadly through online training, through cohort groups, and through a dynamic website. So later this year, I'd be happy to come back and share a little bit more about 10 by 10 because it is going to be this broad interdenominational gathering that is geared to help young people answer these questions of identity, belonging, and purpose.
2: Sounds exciting.
1: Yep. We would absolutely love that. And so we look forward to that launch and anyone who's listening, keep your eyes open for that. Dr. Karapal, thank you so much for your time today. We are such big fans of the Fuller Youth Institute. And if anybody's listening who has not heard about Growing Young, who has not heard about Sticky Faith, you need to get your hands on these books and resources and materials because they are research-based, And they're finding the bright spots of what's happening in congregational life in the United States and highlighting why it's working. And you can use some of those things in your own context. And definitely the three big questions that change every teenager that is on sale came out in 2021. Should get your hands on that. I, as a parent, have a 12-year-old. And this conversation has energized me to want to engage with him more in these questions Mm -hmm. because I don't want to lose sight of the fact that he's going to begin wrestling with these things. And he may not be aware that he's wrestling with identity, belonging, and purpose, but you know, helping him navigate that is so critical. So where can folks uh, follow or find you?
0: Easy to go to fulleryouthinstitute.org. That's where you can find out about this book, Three Big Questions, as well as the other two books that you mentioned, Matt, that have been especially helpful for leaders and parents, Sticky Faith, as well as Growing Young.
1: All right. Well, thank you again. Dr. Carapal, we very much appreciate your time and we'll hope to talk to you again when 10x10 uh, 10 10 launches.
0: We'd love that. Thanks.
1: All right, so that was Dr. Kara Powell from the Fuller Youth Institute. And Ben, what are some takeaways you have from that interview? Well, you
2: know, first of all, let me just say that by my account, you uh, potentially offended two different groups of people. Well, one, you <laughs> called out your father. So that's automatic one star rating, I think, from him, probably. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. It's, it's all good. <laughs> and then the door to door evangelists also just really, you wanted to take them off too. So yeah. if our ratings take a hit, we'll know why that that was my first takeaway.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not going to apologize for speaking truth. <laughs>
2: But more importantly, you know, I I really just appreciated the part of the interview where we were able to talk about and get into what the experience of these three big questions are like for youth that hold identities that are historically marginalized. I think it's just such an important aspect of the conversation to highlight because a lot of folks have been talking about how do we engage youth and young adults? What do youth and young adults really want? How do we connect with them? But there's a difference between engaging with the youth and young adults that you know are from middle and upper class environments that are predominantly white or even rural at times and engaging with those that might be people of color might identify as queer there can be some stark differences in those experiences. And so I just love that Fuller thought ahead enough to include them in their research the way that they did and that we were able to have a dialogue about how those differences manifest in wrestling with these questions and what it means to be an adult in relationship with youth and young adults for whom that might be their lived reality.
1: Yeah, and I wonder about your hypothesis, Ben, that we look at the phenomenon of midlife crisis in middle-aged white males. And frankly, I've had a little bit of issue with that from time to time. Sure. But I wonder if when you're swimming in cultural waters, you don't ask what your identity, purpose, and belonging are because they're kind of handed to you, right? That as a white male, you're handed, you know, I could go back and quote, fight club. (laughs) You know, (laughs) please do. Please do. (laughs) Then dad told me to go to college and I graduated. I said, Dad, what next? He said, I don't know, get married. You know, so you have this kind of pathway of life that fits for you. But then at some point, and unfortunately, it's around middle age where you begin to question, have I done what I really wanted to do? Do I have a real identity? What do I belong to? What's my purpose in life? And I wonder about younger people, while it's hard, because you may be different from those around you in majority society, but you're actually asking those questions and figuring them out potentially earlier. And I wonder if you're avoiding the crisis that can come later in life when you've been handed something, you unconsciously follow it. But then at some point you wake up and say, is this really what I am, what I want and what I value and where I belong? I, you know, I've never thought about
2: that, but I think that's a really good question to consider. You know, my theory is that that crisis still comes, but it may come in a different way, right? Because you have some of that identity, those questions of belonging that you're already falling back on, but you might still wrestle with, am I actually doing what I want in Mm-hmm. is it even possible, given the constraints of society and systemic oppression, to do what I want? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's brilliant, and I love that tie-in. And I really just appreciate being able to add nuance to some of these conversations, You know, because it's really important for folks to understand nuance. And I think the more times people can be exposed to contextualized discussions regarding race, sexual identity, gender, the easier it is and the less alarming it becomes for them to sit in those discussions. And so then when you are face to face with a teen that is talking through some of that, you're going to be able to do what Kara talked about doing, you know, with their child and slowing down, right? And pausing and remaining more curious so that you can continue to have a healthier interaction. And so I just, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm always thankful whenever, be it a podcast, a book, an interview, when we can bring in this context, because I think it just helps everyone, those that are having the discussion, those that are listening, and it, it plants seeds for future dialogue and healthier relationships down the road.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's also where we need to look to the strength of our faith traditions, because that's what a faith tradition is supposed to do. It's supposed to answer the questions of identity, belonging, and purpose. And so if your congregation in its messaging, its preaching, its communication is not providing responses or answers to those questions— maybe you need to figure that out and go back to what are Mm -hmm. our core beliefs and understandings, because everyone, I think truly everyone is looking for what is my identity, where do I belong, and what's my purpose? And theoretically, theology, right, the religion uh, should answer exactly that, that science can't necessarily answer that. Science can give you the facts of what you are, but it can't give you purpose, identity, and belonging. And so maybe think about if you're a congregational leader, how is your congregation framing those three ideas, those three questions? Because I think as Kara alluded to as well in her conversation with one of her kids, she saw that the fundamental disagreement was between two of those things. And I wonder how often that's Mm -hmm. the unconscious subtext of an argument, or I get really irate about something because it's a challenge to belief, identity, or purpose. And we don't realize that, so we just get angry and maybe turn to other kinds of tools to try to deal with the situation, when really it's a deeper and more core question. And to your point, Ben, slowing down, assessing, trying to think through, why is this affecting me the way that it's affecting me?
2: Yeah. And can I also just add, and then I want to hear, you know, what were some of the top things that stood out to you, Matt? But I think part of the reason some faith traditions particularly certain you know denominational traditions within Christianity, part of the reason they struggle with this question of identity and belonging is because racial context, gender construct, sexual orientation aren't innately part of their theological reflections on belonging, identity, and purpose. And so when we have divorced theology and spirituality from the lived experiences of millions of people— well, at some point, that's going to be problematic for our tradition, for our communities, for our congregations. And, and I think what we're seeing now is a lot of faith leaders are realizing that, hey, this disconnect has been here for decades, maybe hundreds of years, and we haven't done anything about it. And so now we've got to do the hard work of playing catch up and figuring out how to marry our theology and the real world context. you know, And, and one of the things I've always admired about the person of Jesus is is that I think that marriage was always blatant and obvious. And so, you know, I won't go into a whole sermon, but I think that's what has caused part of this problem and this mass exodus from some faith communities of younger folks, younger adults, millennials like myself, is that marriage hasn't been there and people are starting to play catch up, which I'm really thankful for.
1: And I think we can look at that through the lens of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and I would be willing to bet that Mm -hmm. the majority, if not 100 percent, of people who are listening have heard orthodoxy before. And usually that means like right thinking or right belief, but you may not have heard of the term orthopraxy, which is right practice, right action. And I think, Ben, what you're alluding to is the fact that we have focused so much from the Enlightenment on orthodoxy. What do I believe and what do I think? but we have not focused on what does my behavior reflect in terms of what I believe. Yeah. And going back to core tenets of the Christian faith that we are supposed to love everyone is created in God's image, that's a pretty powerful statement regardless of age, regardless of gender orientation, regardless of the color of your skin. Like it doesn't matter because that should be a core tenet of orthodoxy, but how does that work itself out in orthopraxy? And it definitely is not attitudes of hatred and disdain. Right.
2: Right. You know, during the interview, Matt, you mentioned that the conversation got you reflecting on kind of your own relationship with one of your children. Uh, And so I'm wondering from the conversation itself, what stood out to you on a a more personal level?
1: Yeah, as a dad, it's been really interesting. So I play a first person shooter 5v5 game, and some of you may not even understand what I just said. (laughs) And that's okay. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that made no sense to a lot of our listeners, I think. (laughs) Right. But that's kind of the point, that suddenly I'm in a space with my son and three of his friends where we play this video game together. And in this video game, you can chat not only among yourselves, but you can also chat with the other team. And you can imagine you've got anywhere between 10 and 22-year-old, mostly male people playing a game. The chat gets pretty toxic. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been interesting for me to be present in that. And to try to gently correct my son and his friends in not engaging in that toxic behavior and getting angry and just being really mean to the people on the other end, Mm. but trying to help them understand that sometimes in text there's nuance, that somebody will say something and they'll take it as an insult, but perhaps it wasn't meant as an insult. But it's given me a window into or really even a doorway because I'm present in that with them to a world that I don't even know or wouldn't have known otherwise in the ways that they communicate. And I never thought about how kids communicate via video games, via text, and, you know, how that's an expression of virtue in some way that, you know, we want to be virtuous in any space that we're in, right? We want to speak kindly. We want to present ourselves to the world in a way that is winsome and approachable. And it's an opportunity for me to be in there. And not that everybody needs to play video games with their kids, but it was an opportunity for me to join his world so that I can encounter what he encounters and then see how the values of our family get played out or don't get played out in that environment. And so, you know, maybe we need to be interacting with our kids more on social media and seeing what they see and hearing what they hear so that it helps us understand what they encounter as a generation, so that we can then inform and shape them, but also learn ourselves about aspects of the world that we didn't even know existed.
2: Yeah. And you know, and you and I have talked about this a few different times, and I appreciate the curiosity that you bring into this gaming experience, right? You mentioned times where there's been rupture in a relationship you've had an opportunity to address, and then just your continued desire to learn about the context, about the experience, and about that gaming world. And so I've admired, you know, hearing that from you. And, you know, a question I'm holding that I think most of our listeners are holding, are you actually any good at the game?
1: I'm I'm terrible. (laughs) I'm absolutely terrible. There's a ranking system that contains roughly 18 to 21 levels where, you know, the better you get, the higher levels you attain. Mm -hmm. I'm at the first level and have been for months.
2: (laughs) So nowhere to go but up though, right?
1: Yeah. Nowhere to go but up. And also, I don't get disappointed when we lose games because I I can't go down. So, you know. Oh, yeah. That's great. But in all seriousness, I think you're modeling
2: something that other parents can learn from. And I think that's beautiful.
1: Thanks, man. And I just think, you know, it doesn't have to be anything specific, but just finding a thing that you can enjoy along with. And there are things that he's involved in and my younger son are involved in that I just can't get into. And that's okay. It's okay to have things that you don't join in with them, but just trying to find at least one space where you can share something. I think it really does a lot. And I think that extends, even outside of just your own kids, to youth and young adults in your congregation and finding points of connection that maybe... There's a young adult that very much enjoys something that you do, that you can engage together with them, right? And so finding activities or topics that they're interested in that you can engage and find common ground, and then that's going to open a window into their world for you and open a window into your world for them. And again, that building of a relationship, and then again, us learning and us mentoring in the same space.
2: Yeah, again, I think that's just... The process of learning, you know, we always need to be learning as people, but I think that can become even more important as parents. And so you're modeling that. And then I love the the opportunity and the challenge you pose to other parents to find ways to just to be in that space of learning about your children and and by doing an activity with them. I think that's wonderful. You know, as I circle back to these three questions that Dr. Powell is bringing up in this book, the one that stuck out to me most is this question of belonging. Because that is kind of my central life question. You know, A friend of mine said a few weeks ago that they think everyone has a sermon that their life is about. And for me, it's this question of belonging. I and mean, anyone that follows me on any of my other podcasts, the work that I do, the blogs I write, you know that I wrestle with this almost day and night. I and mean, so I really appreciated that they were able to bring this out in their research. And as a result, I think there's another resource that I want to share with you all today that deals with this question of belonging and relates to the interview that we just had. It's called The Essential Power of Belonging. This is a TED talk or a TEDx talk by Carolyn Clark Graves. And it's about a 12 minute TEDx talk that took place in August of 2019. And Caroline is talking about what it means to belong using the experience of a DNA test that her son took and, and the experience of unpacking the origins of their family, unpacking what it means to be adopted, and then the process of reconnecting to family that was previously lost, all in the context of belonging. Being something that isn't just like factually understood, but has to be experientially known. And the talk itself really just kind of leapt out at me and and it hit me right in the heart, right in my soul, because it's what I think about and feel each and every day. And so I think it just adds a lot of context To this discussion. It's especially useful for those who might be parents in a transracial family or who've adopted children that don't have the same racial identity as you do, or for those that are workers that work with students or youth that identify or occupy a different racial identity. I think this conversation, this talk can highlight and bring a lot of ideas to the surface that might just be useful dialogue and, and prompt questions that you can ask your youth to promote continued learning and curiosity and empathy. And so I think this TED Talk, which again is called The Essential Power of Belonging, adds a lot of benefit and value to this interview.
1: Thanks for that, Ben. So what do you got today, Matt? So I'm bringing an article from The Atlantic called Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And I think it's important just as a parent and seeing my kids interact with other kids and we have screen time limits for our family, but we see other families that don't necessarily have that. I don't know that people really understand how detrimental unlimited screen time can be. And I am not technology averse. I love technology. Some of the best ways of connecting I have with friendships right now, I hang out with a group of friends from college. Two live in Japan, one lives in Philadelphia, one lives in Idaho. And every weekend we're getting together and we interact via a platform called Discord throughout the week. So I'm not averse to technology. I don't think it's a bad thing. It is a great window of connection, but without any constraints and understanding of the downsides, it can be very dangerous and we're just raising a generation of kids that are suffering because we haven't figured out how to interact in a healthy way with technology. And so I just wanted to bring this article just for the sake of awareness, and especially if you're a parent of a teen or a child or even a young adult, you know, it might be something that could start a conversation. Or if you are a leader of youth or young adults in your congregation, it might be something that you want to keep in mind and talk about with them of healthy ways to use or not use technology. I just think it's a topic that Well, personally, I think congregations should be at the forefront of all conversations, that we should not be lagging behind culture, we should be leading culture. And I would love to see congregational leaders lead the conversation about healthy technology in the world, along with other things, of course. I mean, that's not the sole most important thing in life, but it is a critical, critical thing for, I think, all people in our society. And so hopefully this article will get you thinking about that and moving in that direction.
2: Thanks for bringing that. I plan on checking it out myself, you know, just so that I'm aware of what screens can and will do to my little ones. I appreciate you naming this resource. I've been meaning to talk to you about your phone use, Ben. (laughs) I wish I could have seen Matt's face there. He was so serious and concerned. It was great. (laughs) But if you do happen to be on your phone or on a screen watching this, why don't you just take a second and go ahead and leave us a five-star rating? That way, other folks have a chance to find this podcast and connect with the resources and information that we're putting out there. So just take a few seconds, click that five-star button,
1: and keep it on moving. That is a good use of technology to give us a five-star rating. (laughs) It is. We're not self-serving at all. It's a great use. It's a great use. (laughs) No. Hey, we also no. want to give a heads up in terms of resources. We're going to put a pretty good list of Fuller Youth Institute resources in this episode as well. In the interview, we talked about Sticky Faith. We talked about Growing Young. We talked about Three Big Questions book. And just Fuller Youth Institute is a place to watch. And we definitely will try to take Kara up on getting her back when they launch 10 by 10. sounded like a really engaging, really interesting program. But keep your eyes on Fuller Youth Institute. Again, we are just huge fans of their work. And we'll put a pretty good list of their resources in the show notes. Absolutely. And as always, we want to thank the
2: generosity of the Lilly Endowment for making not only this podcast, but the work that we do here at the Center for Congregations possible. Without them, we couldn't be doing this great work and connecting you to these experts. And so we really appreciate their continued support.
1: Yeah, and I didn't even realize that a lot of the research that Kara was talking about was funded by the Lilly Endowment. So even an organization that is funded by them, we are not aware of the breadth of what they fund. I mean, for all we know, they might have funded Velocipastor, you know? I mean, I mean, I think it's within the
2: realm of possibility. We should find that out, actually. <laughs> We also hope that y'all take a minute to follow us on social media. You can follow us at the Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram. That's an easy way to stay up to date on new events that we have coming, congregational stories that we want to highlight, and then just updated information about resources that we continually put out there. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram.
1: And also check out the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G.org, where we put the best resources that we find based on our education events and our work with congregations. It's a great search engine where you can just type it in, and rather than a Google search that gives you hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hits, whittles it down to things that we have had eyes on, that we are fans of, that we think are helpful for congregational life. Yes. And finally, we want to
2: just give a big, big shout out to our listeners in Leander, Texas. We appreciate all 16 downloads uh, that y'all have given us in 2021. Yes, Leander. So we appreciate you. If you're listening, feel free to email us at podcast at
1: centerforcongregations.org and let us know what you like. Absolutely. And we would also be remiss if we did not thank Jaden Lee, our editor and producer of the podcast. He makes us sound amazing every time. We did determine, this is a callback to a prior episode as well, he can cook. So he can. He he apparently can pretty much do it all. And Jaden, we're looking forward to you making us a uh, traditional Australian meal sometime when you visit us in indiana
2: absolutely absolutely so once again thank you all for joining us as we kick off not only a new year but a new season of the podcast we hope you found this in i almost said informal that too but we hope you found this informational and that you'll be joining us for subsequent episodes this season so we appreciate y'all
1: we definitely hope you didn't find it formal that's yeah that's true not
2: the vibe we were going for (laughs) not the vibe Uh, all right y'all until next time i'm ben tapper
1: i'm matt burke thanks everyone